You're listening to Christ is King, all of Him in all of life, from Rivertown Church in Brattleboro, Vermont. This podcast is part of our ongoing mission to be disciples who make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all peoples. For more information, visit rivertownchurch.org. May the Lord bless you in the hearing of His Word. Amen. Let all the earth praise the Lord. Everything under the heaven and the earth, it's all His. It's all His. He created it. He's redeemed it by His blood. It's good to sing about that, isn't it? It encourages and strengthens and kindles hope in the heart to remember those things. We get so caught up easily in all of the affairs of daily life and tend to forget the cosmic realities that the Lord's given us and that He's established and that He's saying to us continually through His Word. So we come to His Word to remember those things and we're continuing in the Christ is King series and this message is going to be the somewhat of the capstone of the subsection of Christ is king over the individual. We've done Christ is king over your members, Christ is king over your money, Christ is king over your moments. And now we're doing Christ is king over your mission. And this will be somewhat of a springboard to launch into the other sections and subsections of the series as we look to see what it looks like for to acknowledge him as king in every area of life. So when I say the word mission, I wonder what comes into your mind. Probably you think about witnessing in the conversion of souls, which is good and right. That's part of the mission, but it is not the mission in its totality. And I would put to you the question this morning, what if we have dramatically misunderstood and reduced the scope of our God-given mission on the earth? There's been a focus for many decades, a long time, primarily on personal evangelism to the exclusion of obeying Christ and establishing his rule and his reign in all of life. And teaching people to do that, teaching others to do the same. And I, I even hesitate to some extent to mention this because I think that personal evangelism is probably an area where we all need to grow. It's an area where I need to grow. So I'm not intending to diminish that as an aspect of God's mission at all. But I'm intending to broaden the scope of it as it's portrayed in Scripture, because we not only need to grow in personal evangelism and witnessing, we need to grow in every area of fulfilling the mission of God. And so we're going to examine that a little more. I'd like to read this quote from a book I've been reading, which I won't commend to you yet because I haven't finished it. But so far, it's been really wonderful. He says, the unbiblical, there's an unbiblical idea of spirituality, and this unbiblical idea of spirituality is that the truly spiritual man is the person who is sort of non-physical, who doesn't get involved in earthly things, who doesn't work very much or think very hard, and who spends most of his time meditating about how he'd rather be in heaven. As long as he's on the earth, though, he has one main duty in life, get stepped on for Jesus. The spiritual man in this view is a wimp, a loser, but at least he's a good loser. The teaching of the Bible is very different. When the Bible uses the term spiritual, it is generally speaking of the Holy Spirit. To be spiritual is to be guided and motivated by the Holy Spirit. It means obeying his commands as recorded in the scriptures. The spiritual man is not someone who floats in midair and hears eerie voices. The spiritual man is the man who does what the Bible says. This means, therefore, that we are supposed to get involved in life. God wants us to apply Christian standards everywhere in every area. Spirituality does not mean retreat and withdrawal from life. It means dominion. 
The basic Christian confession of faith is that Jesus is Lord, Lord of all things in heaven and on earth. As Lord, he is to be glorified in every area of life. In terms of Christian spirituality, in terms of God's requirement for Christian action in every area of life, there's no reason for retreat. Now, I think much of the problem and why we think of God's mission primarily as just and only witnessing to people and the conversion of souls is because most of the time, any sort of study of mission begins in the New Testament. It begins with a great commission in Matthew. To the exclusion of two-thirds of the Bible. Was there no mission before that? It's interesting, I read something this week that said, nearly every heresy that has plagued the church throughout the ages has had one thing in common. It begins with people, whether functionally or outright, rejecting the Old Testament. So a rejection or neglect of the Old Testament has led to all kinds of heresies. And so we must begin there. And we're going to begin there in Genesis, in the beginning, where God begins. So turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. And let's pray before we read. Father, we praise your holy name. Thank you for the privilege that we have to come and to praise you. Let all the earth praise you. You are worthy of praise and glory and honor and blessing and riches and power, just as it says, as all the 24 elders and all the angels and the heavenly hosts and everyone's crying out around the throne. We confess the same to you. And we thank you for the privilege to worship and to sing your praises together as your redeemed people. And we thank you and praise you that you've given us purpose, that you've given us a mission, that you've given us something meaningful to do here on the earth. We pray that you'd open our eyes to see it, that you would strengthen and encourage, fill our hearts with hope and joy as we see what you've given us to do more clearly and walk in it more fully for the glory of your name, that all creation might praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to start here in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. Two verses, three verses. I can count. This is called the Dominion Mandate, if you're unfamiliar. And it says this, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, I pointed this out before, but this is the first command given by God in Scripture. We tend to start with his prohibition of eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But that's not the first thing recorded in Scripture that he says to man. And that's important. It's important because the first thing from God isn't a do not. It's a do. It's not, it's not a prohibition. It's an active thing. Go do this. Go do this. Not don't do this. And if we miss that, if we miss that order, then everything gets out of joint. It gets out of joint because then we start to think, well, if God's just giving us prohibitions, then he's limiting us and he's withholding things from us. And we start to fall into the same line of thinking that Adam and Eve were beguiled by. So we can't miss that order. It's important. The definition of dominion in the dictionary is supreme authority, sovereignty, control, absolute ownership. Have dominion, he told man. It says also in that text that let us make man in our image after our likeness and that he created man in his own image, in the image of God. What is one of the fundamental aspects of God's being? 
It's the same thing that's our primary confession of the Christian faith. He is Lord. He is Lord over all. He owns everything. And so to be made in the image and likeness of God includes for man possessing and exercising authority, control, ownership. It means ruling. Man is to operate by a delegated authority. He's a vice regent exercising and extending God's rule over everything. It says as much in Psalm 8, in verse 3, it says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. So the world began with man ruling, and that's where the world is going to end, too. It says in Revelation chapter 5 that the, the 24 elders were around the throne. They were singing a new song, and this is what they said. Worthy are you, and they're singing to the Lamb, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. In Daniel's vision in chapter 7, it concludes with this verse, verse 27, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Amen. Amen, right? And so, it was thus established. And that's God's intention. And we see the enemy subverting, attempting to subvert this mission and this purpose and this intention of God even now. Even now. He attacks every single word and every phrase that was in the dominion mandate. Listen to this. There's an attack today on authority. I don't have to tell you this. You know, there, this phrase, you've heard it, tearing down hierarchy. Let's tear down hierarchy. No, no authority. That's bad. It's evil. That's the idea that authority is inherently evil. If there's no authority, there can't be dominion. And so the enemy's attacking. The enemy's attacking that. He's attacking the family unit. And sexuality, and that's a direct attack on the words to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. See, God's design for ruling starts with families. But you can't have family and you can't have proper dominion if there's promiscuity. There's all kinds of sexual freedom. Freedom, as they call it. Or homosexuality. You can't have dominion if you don't procreate. You can't fill the earth. There's an attack on gender from the enemy. And that's a direct attack on the phrase male and female. He created them. All the, isn't this incredible just to see how the enemy strategically is attacking everything that God set in place from the very beginning and seeking to undermine his mission in this way? There's an attack on gender, male and female. He created them. There's an attack on gender roles. Man can't have dominion if he doesn't understand the difference between the sexes. If men are the same as women and women are the same as men and we all are really just the same inwardly but we look different outwardly, then it will destroy and disturb the whole order of God's creation. And that's what the enemy, the confusion the, the enemy is trying to sow. And then there's gender confusion. Man can't have dominion if he doesn't acknowledge that he's a man or a woman. And then there's an attack on man himself, which is an attack on the phrase, God created man in his own image. He made him a little lower than the angels and put all things under his feet. There's an attack on man through environmentalism. And I'm not just talking about caring for and stewarding well the creation. I'm talking about the, the idea that, the, that man was created for the earth and not the earth for man. <clears throat> it's the exaltation of nature and animals over mankind, which was the capstone of God's creation. You hear people talk about fur, fur babies. I've got fur babies or I'm a cat mom. That is an attack 
on the dignity of human life. And then there's evolutionism, the idea that man is just an animal. He's not above the animal. He's just an animal. He just sells protoplasm. So the enemy is attacking every, every single thing that God said in the beginning when he set this up. Maybe somebody will say, well, these aren't gospel issues. But you see, the enemy doesn't need to attack the gospel as such if he can destroy the very building blocks of the creation order and the foundations upon which the gospel is built. If you take these things away, there is no gospel. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't work. And so that's what the enemy's doing today. But he didn't start today. We know he started in the beginning, right after God instituted this mandate. The devil's always sought to undermine the mission of God, and he's deceived man from the beginning into being his helper. And incidentally, that began also with an attack on authority, an attack on authority, on God's authority. Did God actually say? There's two ways to read that. You say, did God actually say it? In other words, did he really say that? Or did God actually say, as in, can you believe he's not letting you do this? It's an attack on God's authority. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, he convinced man that it would be better to be the supreme and highest authority than to have a delegated authority under God. So he attacked authority and Adam failed. Adam failed to subdue the earth and was instead himself subdued by sin. He broke fellowship with God, and he lost, in a measure, his God-given authority. So instead of having dominion over the world, the world has dominion over him. The creation fights and kicks. You go and look at all this in the curse that God pronounced. The creation fights and kicks against being subdued by man. Being fruitful and multiplying has become hard and painful. Man's helper seeks to rule over him instead of being ruled by him, and he's now totally dominated by sin. Nevertheless, notwithstanding all that, there's no place in the scriptures in which the dominion mandate was ever rescinded by God. It continues to be God's intention. Man exercising godly rule over the earth. That's his intention. It tells it to Abraham in Genesis 13. Go and walk throughout all the land that I'm going to give to you. He says it in Joshua 1. Possess, possess. We heard it in the reading of the law that David read. Possess. When you go in and possess the land, they were to go in and they were to take it. They were to subdue it. They were to exercise dominion over it. And they did succeed in a measure. But ultimately, as we know, continuing the story throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, that it resulted in great apostasy and turning away from both the Lord and from his mission. But it was a picture. It was a picture of that which was to come. And enter Christ. Amen. This is the glorious part. Enter Christ. He came to do a number of things. He came to undo the effects of the curse and the fall. Listen to this hymn. We sing it as a Christmas hymn, but it's not really a Christmas hymn if you think about the words of it. It's actually, Isaac Watts wrote it, I believe, and it was a summary, his summary of, of Psalm 98. Joy to the world. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. I love that third verse. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. 
far and wide. Everything that was cursed and undone by the fall, Christ came to restore. It says that he came to redeem the whole world and all creation. In Romans 8, it says, verse 18, you can turn to it. This is a bit, bit of a long one, but it's important. He came to redeem the whole world and all creation. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy, not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the, revel- for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So he came to redeem the whole world, all creation. When I say the whole world, I don't mean every single person in the world. I'm not going universalist on you. The whole, but it does say all creation, the whole world. He came to reconcile all things to himself. It says in Colossians 1, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He came to restore fellowship between God and man and enable man to rule rightly. You see, because when the fellowship between God and man is broken, it breaks the authority. It breaks that man is operating on his own authority, doing his own will, going his own way. And it, but he can't undo the way that he was made. He was made to exercise authority, and he will exercise some authority. It just depends on what authority it will be, whether it's his own evil authority according to his own ways and his own mind, or whether it's God's authority. And so Christ came to reconcile, to restore the fellowship between God and man, to break the barrier, to tear the veil, so that that fellowship could be restored and the, the flow of authority could go as it was intended to at first. The pinnacle of the gospel is the salvation of man because man was the pinnacle of God's creation. He came to restore and to redeem Everything that was undone and broken by the curse. But the pinnacle of that was man. Because man was the only one at the the capstone of his creation where God said, it was very good. He created man and woman. He said, this is very good. And so because man was the capstone and the pinnacle, man is the the redemption of man is the capstone and pinnacle of the gospel. It says in Colossians 1, 21 through 22, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, Doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So, Christ, he came to do all that. He came to redeem, he came to undo the effects of the curse and the fall. He came to redeem the whole world and all creation, to redeem all things to himself, to restore fellowship between God and man, enable him to rule rightly, and he came to succeed where the first Adam failed. Sin got dominion over Adam. Christ came to destroy it. It says in 1 John, the reason the Son of God appeared was to what? Destroy the works of the devil. The devil gained victory over Adam. Christ came to dethrone him. Colossians 2 13 through 15, you who were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Okay, that's the reconciliation of man there. And then listen to this. He disarmed the rulers 
and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He's a man of war. It says in Exodus, the Lord is a man of war. And he makes war, he wages war against the powers of evil, and he wins. He wins at the cross. This is the fulfillment of the original gospel promise in Genesis 3.15. You know it. You know it well. I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to the Lord, speaking to the serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And that's what Christ did at the cross. He bruised the head, dealt the fatal blow to the enemy. You see, that's, if, if we just view the gospel and, and God's mission and, as simply, uh, it's just about me. It's just about, only about me and only about the forgiveness of my sins and only about me being fulfilled and having a good life. Then we dramatically reduce the, the purpose of God in redemptive history and the work that he's done. It really makes a mockery of the cross because it wasn't just about me. It was about him defeating evil, defeating the powers of evil and the kingdom of darkness and him winning the victory. So that brings us to the last point, the last thing that that Christ came to do. He came to usher in the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. I heard somebody say, the only gospel that Jesus ever preached was the gospel of the kingdom. Have you ever thought about that? Forty-nine times the book of Matthew refers to the kingdom. That's a lot. The kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. This is how John the Baptist's ministry is characterized as beginning in Matthew. He says, repent. Repent. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's a new king coming, and he's bringing with him his kingdom. Therefore, you must repent. That's what Jesus said, too, in John. Right after he was baptized and driven into the wilderness and tempted by the devil, he came out and says, he began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It says in Colossians 1.13, He has delivered us from the kingdom or the domain of darkness, and He's transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see, the story of history is a competition between clashing kingdoms. The kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of God and Christ. It's in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's what the thief said on the cross. Isn't that amazing? The, the, the little knowledge that he had and just before he died and the one thing that he said, his profession of faith to the Lord Jesus was, remember me when you come in to your kingdom. This was the content of Jesus' preaching after the resurrection. It says that for 40 days he showed himself to everyone with many infallible proofs, speaking about the kingdom of God. It's the conclusion of the book of Acts. At the end of Acts, it says that Paul lived in Rome two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The principle of God establishing his kingdom through his son throughout all the earth is so ubiquitous in the New Testament that you have to purposely try to miss it. And I think we've done a pretty good job. <laughs> I have. I mean, I've read, I've read this my whole life, you know, and... A lot of times we see the, that, the talk about the kingdom and we just, oh, I don't really know what that means. I don't really understand exactly what that is. And we just kind of, oh yeah, the kingdom. The kingdom's coming, the kingdom's here. But we don't apprehend fully what are the implications of that. What does that mean that the kingdom is here? We'll get to that in a minute. 
So what, is, what does this all mean for us today? Let's go to the Great Commission. Matthew 28. Wonderful and glorious passage and fascinating to meditate and think on it in light of the entirety of the Old Testament and in light of the dominion mandate given at creation. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority... In heaven and on earth has been given to me. There it is again. Authority. Go, therefore, because all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, you go. And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. All, all, all. All authority, all nations, all that I've commanded. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So again, it, begin, it begins here with authority. And it must begin with the authority of God over all creation. The enemy's primary attack is on authority. And so we remedy that by, and God remedies that in his word by beginning with authority. All authority has been given to him, and we go in the power of his authority. We don't go of our own accord. We don't go in our own name. We don't go in our own strength. We don't go because we wanted to go or felt like going. We go because authority has been given to him, and he's charged us to go. Authority is the starting point of the Great Commission. It's the starting point of gospel proclamation. If you go and look in Acts 17, when Paul's preaching in Athens to these people, they, they didn't know anything about Christ. And he sa- it says that his spirit was provoked within him because he saw many idols in the city. And the place, the thing that he says to them, the gospel proclamation that he says to them is, the times of ignorance God has winked at or he's overlooked. But now he commands all men everywhere to repent. For he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That was his gospel proclamation to these people who had never heard the gospel. Obey. The command has been given. Repent and obey because God's going to judge the world by this man to whom all authority has been given. So it's the starting point of the Great Commission. It's the starting point of our gospel proclamation. It's the starting point of being a disciple. We tend to, we tend to talk about this. As it's just The gospel is just an invitation to come to Jesus and have a better life. Come to Jesus and, and have your problems fixed and be healed and be helped. It is those things. It is to come be healed. It is to be helped. It is to to come and have a better life. Make no mistake about that. But that is typically presented to the neglect of repent and declare allegiance to the king. That's the message that you see in the book of Acts. When you, when you see them going over, you, Acts 2 and Acts 4 and on and on, you go through every sermon that's preached there, the thrust of the message is that God has established Jesus Christ as Lord and King over all, and he's given assurance of it by raising him from the dead. And every man under heaven has the obligation to repent and obey him. That's the command of the gospel. And it is a command. It's not just an invitation it's not just an invitation. If you feel like it, if you're tired of your life, it's a command. Come and obey the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's good for you to do this. But it's interesting that it doesn't start there. It doesn't start, with a, it doesn't start about me. It doesn't start with healing and helping and fixing me. 
It starts with me properly acknowledging who he is and his place. And then the blessing flows from that. We see in Revelation 4 and 5 that God has a twofold claim on the world. This is throughout the Bible, but it's particularly evident there in those two chapters. All of chapter 4 is an exaltation of God as the creator of the world. Sovereign God, creator. And they're singing, and they're singing, and they're singing. But then in chapter 5, then in chapter 5, the lamb on the throne is exalted as the redeemer of the world. And then they sing more songs and greater songs. So he's got a twofold claim. He owns everything because he made it. He created it all by the word of his power. For him and through him and to him are all things. But he also has another claim on it because he's redeemed it by his blood. And this is the incredible thing. Not that that's not incredible, but this is especially incredible. That he has delegated his authority to us. And that after he had already delegated it to mankind in the garden. And then man spat in his face. Rebelled. He's delegated his authority to us. We have so little idea of the power and the authority that the Lord has vested in us to carry out his mission. We don't truly live and walk in the power and authority of Jesus Christ. But we could, and we should, we must. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are ministers of reconciliation, and we beseech men in Christ's stead Because he's not here, we're here instead of him, and we beseech me and say, be reconciled to God. And he's given us the authority and the charge to do that. We're vice regents. We belong here. We, I've said this before, we, we tr- I'm so guilty of this, it's a mindset, it's truly a matter of belief about what God has said, about what he's done, what he's accomplished, that the world belongs to him, that he sent us in his authority and power, and it, but, but we look all around, it doesn't appear that way, and so we judge by what our eye sees, and we decide by what our ear hears, instead of looking to his word and saying, well, this settles it. I know it doesn't seem this way, but this is what God's word says, so this is how I'm going to believe and live. And, and so we don't walk like it says in the Proverbs where it says the righteous are bold as a lion. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. But we don't walk like that because we don't really believe what he said about the authority that he's entrusted to us. And so we kind of live like the world really belongs to, to all the lost, it really belongs to, to the devil, and he can just freely do whatever he wants, and all the lost people are ruling and reigning, and we're just trying to snatch a few people out here and there, but we can't be too bold about it. We're a little bit shy because it's embarrassing because we're not like them, and they're not like us, and they think that we're weird and that we're psychotic, that we're out of our minds, and so we just kind of, you know, we approach people like this, head down, kind of drooping. It's wrong. We don't have to do that. He has been given all authority. His kingdom has come. And he's charged us to go. Go in my authority. Make disciples. What if we really lived like this? What if we really lived in this, this confidence? There's this scene in the movie that I really like. I hesitate to use movie illustrations, but this is such a good one. It was, it was uh, really like a, a turning point for me, and I don't typically advocate for seeking for the Lord to speak to you through movies, <laughs> but, but occasionally the Lord can use something, and he used this for me, and, and as I'm watching this movie, and, and they're, they're, going to a, they're going to this facility, that, and they're going there illegally, and they're going there. They shouldn't be there. And the, the, it's a man and a woman, and she's really nervous. 
She's like, I don't, we don't belong here. What do we do here? What are the rules? What are the rules? They're trying to get in, and they're trying not to get caught. And he's just confident, calm, and collected, acting like he's going to walk. And she's like, what do we do? What if we get caught? What if we're in trouble? And she, she says, what are the rules? She asks him. And he says, there are no rules. We belong here. That is the kind of attitude that we should have. Not that there are no rules, but you know what I mean. That the rules and the structures that the world has set up are not to be imposed on us. We follow another king, and he has authority here. And we should live and act like that. The world is the ones, they are backwards and upside down. We're the ones who follow the king, and we know the truth and walk in it. We're under orders from the king to speak and to act on his behalf, by his power, and in his name. Listen to this from Ephesians chapter 1. It says, for this reason, this is a prayer that Paul's praying, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, and not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Did you catch that? He's the head. We are the body. God has set him above all things, and the same power that raised him from the dead is the power that dwells in us to go and to complete the work that he's given us to do. So what's the significance of the, of king, of the kingdom? All that talk about the kingdom, what's the significance of that for us? Think about this, okay? The, when God talks about things in the Bible, it's intended to give to paint pictures in our minds and to give images. And especially, particularly in the time when that was written, they understood much more about kingdoms than we do. We have nations today that we refer to their nations, but not kingdoms. But they would have known well about kingdoms. So when you think about a kingdom, think about the kind of kingdom that you see in a movie or in a book. You know, there's a castle, and there's a king in the castle, and, and, and there are subjects and servants and citizens of the kingdom. But it all comes back to the king. There's a king ruling. There are laws and rules in accordance with the king's will. There's a particular culture and climate of the kingdom. There's an expectation that subjects and citizens will conduct themselves in a particular way. This is how we should think about the world. It's God's world, God's rules. His kingdom is here. We should think about it as a kingdom. He owns it. He's ruling over it. So we make disciples, baptize them, teach them to obey all that Christ commanded. That's talking about, it's not just conversion. Not just go and get people converted. Teach them to comprehensive obedience in all of life. We must be disciples. This is our mission statement. Be disciples who make disciples, and we have to be disciples who obey him in every area, every sphere of life, so we can make other disciples who obey him in every area, every sphere of life. This is just an extension of the dominion mandate. The original was never rescinded, as I said. Listen to this. The first Adam, along with his helpmate Eve, failed to multiply, subdue, and take dominion for the glory of God. But the second Adam, Christ, along with his helpmate, the church, will succeed in multiplying godly seed, in subduing and taking dominion for the glory of God. Where the first Adam failed, the second Adam always succeeds. That's what we pray for 
in the Lord's Prayer that his kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth the way it's being done in heaven. It's, and it's not a matter, this isn't a conquering by force like earthly kingdoms. It's a conquering through the proclamation and demonstration of the gospel. We extend the rule and the reign of his kingdom as we obey every day in every sphere of life from the greatest of things to the smallest of things. We want to see his kingdom established in every single thing. Everything, everywhere, every sphere, every generation, in everything, every activity, every task, every duty, every responsibility, every chore, every labor, every leisure, every routine, every habit, every meal, every conversation, every interaction with every person, every word, every thought, every deed. Every single thing matters. Everything matters. Not just, you're not just being spiritual and obeying God when you go witness to someone. That is being spiritual and obeying God, but you're being spiritual and obeying God when you faithfully prepare food for your family and you try to make good food. You, that's honoring to the Lord. That's a way that we obey him. Little things like that. I'm going to make the best meal that I can possibly make for my family. That's a way that we establish God's kingdom. Tiny things like that. And it's joyful and it's fulfilling. I had, I had quite a time yesterday I was preparing this message and I'm just marinating and meditating on all this stuff. It's so, so joyful just thinking of the Lord's rule and his reign over everything and, and the charge that he's given me to rule my household and do and so I'm just glad and excited for the day. And 8 o'clock, my kids come down. I'm like, okay, let's do this. And I tell you what, 15 minutes later, I was ready to send them all back upstairs and put them to bed. I was so irritated. They're running around just like crazy people screaming. I'm like, oh, no. I was such in a good mood earlier. How did this happen? <laughs> and, and, then the, the, and then I so dealt with that in the morning, had a pretty bad attitude most of the morning, and then I put him down for naps, and I came back to finish preparing for this message, and the Lord convicted me that the very thing I was meditating on and about to preach, I had been unfaithful to do, not just because of my bad attitude, it was before that. It was before that, because, because I just thought, oh, it's just going to be a great day somehow. I've got in my mind what I'm going to do. But I wasn't thinking how to rule my household well. I wasn't thinking about directions to give to my children. What could they do? What could they be doing while I'm doing this? How can I order them rightly? How can I, how can I structure things in my household so that they're not running around like crazy people and I can accomplish the things I need to do? And it was a neglect on my part to manage and to rule my household well. That is the place where I failed to be establishing the kingdom of God, to be on mission doing that. It's little things like that that we tend to treat as side things. Well, these are inconveniences to the real spiritual work. No, no, that is the real work. So we establish that we want to establish the kingdom of God everywhere. All the men, all of you, D David repairing bikes, Ben doing property management, Aaron pushing trash, Greg, Mike, and Danny in the school system, ladies in the home, young adults around your friends. We want to establish the kingdom of God in every sphere, in arts, entertainment, business, finance, media, education, culture, health care, government, family. Every square inch of the universe belongs to our Father, and we are to subdue it on his behalf. And not in some sort of domineering way. It's a gracious and a meek rulership. But it is rule. We are to establish the kingdom of God in every generation. We tend not to think generationally. We just, we just think about us and maybe our children. But not. what about ten generations down the line? We should be building things in obedience to Christ that last. What work, here's a good question, what work 
might my great-grandchildren complete or, or take up and continue that was built upon the foundation of something I started. The things that we do, the work that we do, the way that we use our time and our money, it's for the glory of God, not just in my lifetime, but generations from now, I have the privilege of establishing things that can be used in that way. So we preach the gospel to all creation. We live Christianly. Christianly. I don't know if I made that up, but I like that word. We live Christianly at all times, in all ways, in all places. This is how we fulfill our mission. Uh, This should be really faith-building and hope-inspiring and life-giving. It's encouraging. It's encouraging to know that everything that I do has significance for the glory of God. Every little, I don't just have to, I don't have to be the person who gets rid of everything and moves overseas to be a missionary. That is a valid fulfillment of the Great Commission, but I can fulfill the dominion mandate and the Great Commission right here where I am now in every single moment of my day, and I can have joy in the Lord doing it. Because he always blesses obedience. He all, and he will bless it. We will succeed if we do this in the obedience of faith. Away with the deep sigh. You know the deep sigh that I'm talking that You kind of talk to somebody, how are you doing? <sighs> I'm fine. Is it, there's a sigh. Hey, do you feel the sigh? I feel the sigh sometimes. It's the the soul sighing of the weight of the world and everything that I have to do and all of my, and we view all these things as bad things. All the responsibilities and the duties that the Lord's given us is hard things and they're bad things because we don't bear up under the weight of them in the hope that he set before us and believe him and go forth in the power of his spirit to conquer. But we can, we can. What if we lived every day with the confidence that we cannot lose. And so we should. So we should go and read. Read Hebrews 11. That's a, a living testimony throughout the ages of this truth. Of what God's doing. And that they believed that they would win by faith. Over and over it says, by faith, by faith, by faith they did this. By faith they did this. It was faith and confidence knowing that the Lord was going to fulfill his promises. Knowing that he was going to win ultimate victory. Even if it didn't look like it in that exact moment. And so let's go. We're going to go straight into communion and come to the Lord's table. And that is... Of course, the supreme example of looking like failure, but being actually the greatest victory of all. And it's because of Christ's work on the cross that any of this means anything, that any of it's true, any of it's possible, and that any of it's real. If it wasn't for that, then it would all just be a farce. If it wasn't for Christ dying and raising from the dead, then that, that fall, that would have been the end. And mankind, the human race, would have been lost. But we rejoice in the Lord that it's not so. We praise Him. We praise Him as Lord of all.